Good morning. We're going to continue this morning reading through Luke. We're reading from chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. John's disciples told him about all of these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women there is none greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation what are they like? They are like children sitting out in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said, He is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all of her children. morning WWC. Good to see you and if you're a fresh face or if you're online, uh, my name's Stephen, I'm the Youth and Young Adults Pastor here. It gives me great joy to, to be up here once again preaching from God's Word. Uh, this morning what we'll be looking at uh, is expectations, um, the hope that we kind of put in, in someone or, or something to bring about a, a kind of like a desired result or and, and we'll be specifically talking about the expectation uh, that we all have of God. We bring expectations into all forms of relationships, whether it's marriage or friendships, 
Uh, one for me, a big one was expectations that I brought into to marriage that I didn't even realize that I had. I formulated what married life was going to be like, what it means to be a husband or a wife. A lot of it that I, uh, I guess I just assumed naturally off my parents. Um, and so I had expectations there that weren't realities of the friendship that I was engaging in. It was a point of frustration. Um, and how do we respond to these kind of relationships when we find frustrations? How do you respond with your friends if they're not meeting your expectations of how they should love you or treat you and so on and so forth? But we do this ultimately in our relationship with God. What do we expect him to be like? And what do we expect that he does for us? And more importantly, if he doesn't meet our expectations, how do we respond? What are we going to do with that? I think a general expectation that most people have of God, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, is that if he exists, then I expect that he's good. And if he's good, then I expect that he should have to help. I think that's a general rule of thumb. But what happens when it just doesn't seem to be like it's going that way? Well, it becomes a point of frustration for us. And then we kind of come to the idea, well, either there is no God because things in my life aren't good or look at the state of the world and I can see that it's not good. Or if God does exist and he is good, he can't be that good because he allows evil to just kind of prevail. Inside Christianity, there is the expectation and there is nothing wrong with the expectation that God is good and that he's bringing his good about. What becomes a point of tension in Christianity, uh, uh, inside Christianity and also just in our witness to the whole world, is how we expect this good God to bring his help about to us. What if this good God is helping us as we speak? It's just not the way that we desired. Or what if this good God is bringing about ultimate goodness for everyone, but it's just not the expectation of how we want him to do it? How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond to this God? The sermon this morning, I've titled it, God's Good Plan. And what I hope to unpack in these verses is what God's good plan for your life is. He has a plan for you. But more than this, I do hope that this will bring you to a point of response. That you will accept God's good plan that he has for your life. And that you won't throw it away simply because it's not done the way that I like. What we're going to see in the text is we're going to see two prophets, Jesus and John. And they are wildly different people, but they have the same mission, to bring people to righteousness before God. And we're going to see two groups of people and how they respond to this mission. The story, I've broken it down. I think it's on the screen for us. Yep, there it is. We're going to go through 18 to 23, looking at John's expectation of what God's plan is or what the Messiah will do. In 24 to 28, we're going to look at Jesus' confirmation of God's plan that he saw in John's ministry. And then in 3, Jesus has an expectation of those who respond to his good news or to his plan. 
Before we get into it, we're going to pray, and then we'll hit the text. Heavenly Father, would you humble our hearts before your word? Lord, everything that you give us is good. The salvation that you have attained for us through your Son is good. Lord, the way that you call us to respond to you is good. It's for our betterment. Lord, thank you that you love us so much. In your name, amen. So Jesus has finished bringing a a dead man back to life, the widow's son in Nain, as we saw last week, if you were here with us last week. And the crowds that had gathered around Jesus started to say, this is surely a prophet of God. But they said even more than this, surely God has visited his people and this spread out through all the land. We saw this in just the verses prior to where we are now. And what happens is John's disciples, John had students, John the Baptist, they caught wind of this and they took it to John. And John at this point, he's living in a cell because he spoke out against one of the rulers in his marriage. And when the news comes to him about what the people are saying about Jesus, John gets two of his disciples and sends them to Jesus because he wants to confirm who Jesus is. And I've messed my pages up. Here we go. Who Jesus is. <laughs> and we need to appreciate Luke as its own gospel. We tend to read all the gospels and we want to line them all up. But Luke here, he's kind of showing us that John has been prophetically saying, there's someone who's going to come after me. Someone will come. He's greater than I am. I can't untie his shoes. But he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But he never actually says who it is in Luke's gospel. And so John, he comes to this point and he says, are you the one we should be expecting? What he's asking is, are you the one that God promised would come? The Messiah or the anointed ones, where we get the word Christ from. John's question, it has to be appreciated for his understanding. You see, his understanding of what the Messiah would do is this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing shovel will be in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will be burned with a fire that never goes out. The prophetic idea that John had of the Messiah when he would come is that he would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. We see this at Pentecost. But John also had an idea when the Messiah came, he would make a clear distinction. Those that are God's people and those that are not God's people. Those that are God's people will be purified by the Holy Spirit and the fire. And those that are not will be thrown into an unquenchable fire, condemned. It's heavy. And then Luke summarizes Jesus' ministry and this is what he says. He was healing many people of their diseases. He rebuked demons and the afflicted. He granted sight to the blind. You listen to John and his understanding. That's scary. We got pitchforks, right? We got fires. And then we listen to what Jesus is doing in his ministry and how he's bringing it to people. And you can see the confusion. And so Jesus answers John's question about who he is in a very Jesus manner. Yeah, Jesus, he just never likes to say yes or no. 
He loves to just kind of say it in a roundabout ways where you've got to figure it out. Look, John, look at what I do. The blind can see. Those that are diseased, they're clean. For goodness sake, the dead are rising. And I'm preaching the good news to the poor. Look at my miracles. They are signs of who I am. Jesus saw his miracles testifying to and providing evidence or revelation of who he is. And I don't want to diminish what I said last week, and I don't think that it does. The miraculous, the, the, the power of God here on earth, the Lord loves to bring it about because of his compassion and his mercy for people. But we don't stop there. All miracles are signs pointing to a greater reality that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one that God has sent. You see, Jesus, he could go through all of Galilee for his ministry if he wanted to. And he could raise every dead person that he saw and bring them back to life. And everyone would be like, whoa, Jesus, go for it. It'd be awesome. But they all got to die again. And the only thing really worth knowing at that point is Jesus is the Messiah. Old people, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, the widow's son, all raised, all to die. A temporary fix to an eternal consequence. And so when we come to the question, what is God doing, this good God doing to bring about his good plan, his ultimate good plan? Salvation. Eternal salvation is the good that he can give you, that he wants to bring for you through his son, the Messiah. You see, Jesus ends a statement to John like this, the poor are told the good news, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. You've got to look at Jesus' ministry and really ask people, what's offensive? What's offensive about Jesus' ministry? When you drive into Burke, there's these big walls on both sides of the road that says, Fred Hollows Memorial. Fred Hollows was this guy whose life's ministry, his life's work, was dedicated to restoring sight to the blind in the indigenous community. Do you think anyone sits there and goes, what a horrible ministry? I'm, I'm offended. No way. You build monuments for people like that because they are compassionate and they're merciful. Jesus comes along and from him is oozing healing from him. People come to him and they are restored. They walk again. They're raised. Demons are rebuked. What's offensive about him? He brings with him the good news. And this doesn't just offend religious people. It offends the intellect of the philosophers. It offends the pagans who have other deities. It offends everyone. Why is the good news offensive? It's good, so surely I should just be ready to receive. Isn't it good? And that depends on our point of reference. The good news that Jesus proclaimed that was God 
was fulfilling his promises to his people Israel that the Messiah was coming, that there would be salvation for everyone. That's the good news. Everyone, each and all of you can have salvation. But the other side of that good news, the reason that this has to take place is because everyone is condemned in their sins and they do not possess the means to save themselves. You must be saved by God. Does it still feel like good news? I hope it does. But this is the bad side to the story before the good news of the Messiah comes. And Jesus says, blessed is the one. Blessed, that word blessed, it means divine favor is upon the one. Divine favor is upon the one who can receive that message. Because their life has gone from eternal condemnation to eternal life. You see, when we watch the miraculous here happen on earth with our eyes, we rejoice so much. But you know, when one person repents at hearing the good news that was preached by Jesus, Jesus says the angels in heaven, they rejoice because the most marvelous and the most wonderfulest of things has taken place. A sinner has gone from eternal death to eternal life. This is the greatest good that God can give. The second part of the question, how do we expect a good God to help us? How exactly is he bringing it about? How does he bring about this good plan? We move now to 24 to 30. The disciples of John, the students of John, they, they leave Jesus, they go back to report to John. And Jesus decides to take this opportunity to teach the crowds about John the Baptist, who he is and, and what he'd done and the message that he brought. And he starts by asking them a question of why they went out to the desert. It's interesting, Luke doesn't really provide too much information in his own account of what John was like. But what we do know is that he was someone who, from a very young age, he went and lived in the desert, isolated. What we also know about him is that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him powerfully and he would walk up and down the Jordan River and he would preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to make ready a people to receive the Messiah when he came. That was his ministry. If you were to kind of chuck John into today's context, I was just trying to think about this. It'd be like a man living down at the Hawkesbury River and he lives in the bushes and he's all by himself. And when you'd see him, he probably just eats the food out of the bins. What he has for clothes isn't actually clothes. He found a bit of Hessian lane on the road, just decided to tie that around him. And when you saw him or when you went and approached him, he would say that the wrath of God is upon you that you need to repent and turn from your sins and be baptized in the river with him. You call him crazy. And that's what the people were doing. This guy's got a demon in him. He's a loony. He's the guy that when you were like, oh, actually when we go for our walk today at the Hawkesbury River, we we just got to go around this bush. We don't want to go, you don't want to go meet John. And Jesus says to the people, but you did. You did go out to see him. Why did you go out to see him? 
Was it to see a reed swaying in the breeze? In other words, did you just go out to see a whole bunch of nothing? No, I actually got the, the pleasure of going out to be where it is believed he preached. And the only reason that I'm there is because that's apparently where he was. And it's a whole bunch of nothing. Jesus is like, but you didn't go out to see a whole bunch of nothing, did you? You knew something important was out there. And what was it? Well, important people live in important places and they have fancy clothes. But you went to John. And by the world's standards, he is not an important person. So what did you go out to see? You went to see a prophet from God. You went to see and to listen to him because you knew he had words that led to life. That's what you went out to see. And Jesus pushes it even further, but you didn't just see a prophet, you saw something greater than a prophet. And then he quotes Malachi 3.1 and Jesus says, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, that is John, and he will prepare the way before you. The kingdom of God is here because of Christ, the Messiah. And all are welcome to come into this kingdom. John is the guy that you need to talk to on the street because you've been driving around the kingdom and you have no idea where the front door is. You see, Jesus brought the kingdom. John showed you the way in which to enter it. This is why he is so great. He knows the way in which all of us must go to meet the Messiah. You've got to go find the crazy guy down at the river. John is great because he knows the way. But the one who would actually listen to him and go and meet the Messiah and repent of their sins and be baptized and receive the kingdom, this one is greater. Why? The guy handing out the tickets, he's not the one going into the party. What happens in the next few verses, 29 and 30, it's really interesting because Luke actually breaks up Jesus' teachings. You'll see the whole thing, it's just one big chunk. And then Luke, our writer, he actually puts his own little narrative in for two verses because he wants to show you the heart response of people that are listening to Jesus in real time. And this is what he says concerning the people who are listening to Jesus and what he says of John. All the people, including the tax collectors, heard this. They acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. Luke essentially breaks all people down into two categories. Those baptized by John and those not baptized by John or those that have received that baptism. The crowd of people, along with the tax collectors, which is Luke's shorthand way of just saying terrible sinners, they heard Jesus' words confirming John's baptism, ministry, the repentance of sins, and they knew that this was God's righteous way. In other words, they acknowledged that the right way one must come to God is by being forgiven of their sins and receiving it 
by repenting, that is confessing and turning around, and the baptism. That's why they acknowledge John, and that's why they acknowledge Jesus and his words. But those who were not baptized by Jesus, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they rejected God's plan for themselves. They rejected John, a prophet of God. They rejected God, his plan. Now understand what scripture is saying here. God's salvation was for them, his master plan, and they chose to reject it. I don't want it. I don't want your righteousness, Jesus, and I don't want to receive it the way that you're trying to give it to me. Get out of my face. They rejected it. It's so interesting being a youth pastor. Hmm. You go to a lot of different camps and we try to keep it pretty hip, us youth pastors, for the children, you know. You go to a lot of different services and your end goal, it's always the same. All you want to see is these young men and women come and put faith in Jesus. And you preach and you tell them about the Messiah who forgives them of their sins. And I watch these guys and these girls and they want their, their youth to respond and that's a beautiful thing. And when they're doing it, sometimes it gets kind of weird. And we're like, if you want to respond to the message tonight, come light a candle. If you want to respond to the message tonight, why don't you write down your horrible sins on a bit of paper? We're going to thumbtack that up on the cross because God's taken them away. And then afterwards, we'll get a little lighter and we might burn that bit of paper up. Something like that. I don't know. That's all cool. It's all illustrative. God explicitly gives us the means by which we are to receive the salvation that he offers in his son. Through repenting, confessing and turning from our sins and baptism. That is what he gave his body, the church, to do. This is how you receive my message. Back to our question. How do we expect a good God to help us? Ultimately, he's good for you. Even if you never have a miracle in your life, but you've received the message, you are blessed. The divine favor of God is upon you because the most miraculous has happened. And secondly, the good in the way that he brought it about was he offers forgiveness of sins through his Messiah. And now God or Jesus has an expectation of those who hears his message. Respond through repentance and baptism. I wanted to formally call this part, uh, when we get into 31 and 35, Jesus' apologetics, or Jesus' defense of his and, and his and John's ministry. 
because it's a really interesting piece. It's written to people who will not respond, that is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. There's too many reasons why they don't want to respond. Listen to what Jesus says to these people. What will I compare this generation to? This unresponsive generation. What are they like? They're like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proven right by all her children. What does Jesus compare people to who don't want to respond to God's good plan? Your child. Why does he call them children? He actually goes further, and I would say that he's saying, You're a fussy little brat. This is what he's saying. They're like children who want John and Jesus to tap along to their beat. Well, we're, we're playing it this way. You, you dance. We got the happy tune going, dance for us. We got the somber tune going, lament. The imagery here is children playing and these people, they won't, they won't do what the song is kind of saying to do. And it's people, it's showing people who don't respond to Jesus's and John's message, which is the same message. Come on, John. What's with all the fire and the brimstone? What's with all the fasting and the isolation? Surely that isn't God's plan for you and how it's all meant to come about. Stop being such a party pooper. Be joyful. And then what do they say to Jesus? Jesus, how dare you? You come in here with your feasting and you're celebrating with all the sinners? Mourn a little, wouldn't you? That's what they're doing. That's what Jesus says. You don't like the way John did ministry through fasting and isolation. And you don't like the way that I do it through celebrating and feasting with sinners. But guess what? The wisdom of God is knowing that both of us are a prophet and we have the same message to bring people to the righteousness of God. John has told you how to receive this, how to receive me, your Messiah, your righteousness. And this is the plan, that mankind should repent of their sins and be baptized to receive their Messiah who holds out the gift of forgiveness of sins. This is God's plan for your life. I was trying to compare this to something and I was thinking about my children, obviously children. And I had my, my father days, you know. And I'm like, I just want them to experience joy. It's dad's day. We got the day. Let's do something awesome. So I pack them in the car. We go to Hungry Jack's because it's cheaper and we get our hot chocolates. And then I'm like, we're going to head up to the sticks because we haven't been out in the wild for a bit and you can run around and have all the fun that you want. It'll be awesome. 
We get in the car, we get our hot chockies, we go up. Uh, I wanted a hot chocolate from McDonald's, they're better. Uh, I wanted to go to time zone. So what does dad do next father's time? We'll get our hot chockies from McDonald's and we'll go to time zone. Oh, I wanted a frozen Coke. I wanted to go to the cinemas. All I want to do is bring you joy. And you will bring up any excuse just to whinge, just to mope and complain. God comes along and he tells his children, I've come and I've brought salvation and the way in which I've brought it is that I've put your sins upon my son so that I remain just, so that sins are still punished and that the sinner, you who are actually the guilty one, can go free and you will be called righteous and you will be my children. And I tell you, the way in which you will receive my message is through repenting of your sins and being baptized. And those who should have known him best, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Ugh. Why are you going to do it that way, God? Why are you going to make it so hard for us? You got two children. Children who whine about God's plans. I don't want to do it. And children who are of the Lord's, who are vindicating his message because they will be his. We all have to reckon with the fact that Jesus not only has the authority in which he wants to bring salvation, that he has brought salvation because he chooses to lay down his life for you. He gets to make that. But he is also the Lord over how you should respond to him. He gets to decide that as well. You can try and make God beat to a different drum, but his prophet has spoken. Jesus finishes, and this is actually the beauty of the passage right here, right at the end. It's oh so small in this last sentence. And I must admit, as I was writing this, I was like, I'm not at peace until I find the assurance. And it's here at the end. The message or the wisdom of God, it'll be vindicated or it will be known because of the children of God who received John's message by responding to their Messiah Jesus through repentance and baptism. There is a great assurance for us in the end. The wisdom of God is his salvation. And wisdom for us is knowing the plan of God or the will of God and doing it. That's wisdom that God sees in humans. Knowing his plan and doing it. The wisdom of God's plan is not only that he brings us salvation through his son, but wisdom also prevails in giving us the means by which to receive that salvation. There's assurance here. 
How many of you have been walking for so long and you've started to question whether you're actually saved? You've started to wonder. You don't wonder in the idea that you can be saved by Jesus. You're wondering, have I received salvation of Jesus? I remember having this thought in my head. When I got saved, I felt like I had this big-ass fire burning in my chest. Three months later, I felt like it was all snuffed out. Did I lose something? Did I, did I do something wrong? How do I have assurance that my response, that I've received salvation? I'll put the question at you, how do you know you're actually saved? It's not as though we can see the Holy Spirit because he is the distinctive marker of those that are saved and unsaved. And God says to us in his word, Luke will write this later in Acts. This is God's word to us. That if you respond, if you respond by repentance and being baptized for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, you will receive, not you might receive, the promise of God is you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, to get back to John for a second and his prophetic words, you will be baptized by the Messiah. The fire of the Messiah will purify you. And you don't have to wonder, am I the chaff getting blown away into the unquenchable fire? Why? Not because you responded well, but because you lived by faith in God's word that I will respond the way that he tells me to. The portion of scripture finishes like this. The promise, the promise, the promise if you respond this way to the Lord is that you will receive the Holy Spirit. And this is for you, Scripture says. And it's for your children, Scripture says. And it's for all of those who are far off. Everyone. On whoever calls on the name of the Lord. So I sit here and I think... You know how many theological debates there are about like, does God save all the way? How much does humans have to do? Is it all God? Is it all human? There's so much wisdom in God because he provides us the way to respond. And so whilst you respond as the human, you are still just living by faith in the promise of God that Lord, this is the way you told me in which to respond and I believe and I trust in you. And so he grants us assurance, not only in the way that he brings about salvation, but he grants assurance in the way that we receive salvation. You are his. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I thank you um, first and foremostly for your son. Lord, that you have a grand scheme that is much larger and it's bigger than we know, that your wisdom is far beyond our own. 
And Lord, who are we to say that it should look or be any different? Lord, we just humbly say thank you for everything that you've given us. Would you bless us, Lord, in your name. Amen.